Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I, I mean, that's a peculiar intro, to be honest. Um, uh, firstly, the flattery, which is lovely, and then uh, the permission to preach a bad sermon. So um, that's great. I'm, I'm all right with that. Uh, it's brilliant to be with you and, uh, and great to hear you're starting a week of prayer, although I feel like I've learned more about what you're going to be eating over that week than what you're going to be praying about, so, um, which is no bad thing, to be honest. Um, I've never had a prayer meeting where I've been served a burger, but I'm, I'm up for that. I'm taking that idea back to London. Um, and it's great to be here today. And actually, I'm going to speak on the subject of prayer uh, to kind of kickstart your week of prayer, as it were. And I'm going to look at a Sunday school classic today, which is the story of Daniel in the lion's den, which I guess for many of us is quite a familiar story. You probably uh, are familiar with it, whether you've read it or not. Uh, but I want to give a bit of background, uh, sort of explain what happened in the run up to it, give a bit of context, uh, and then we'll leap into the story. So the beginning will feel a little like a history lesson, but bear with me, it won't all feel like this. Uh, in 605 BC, the Babylonian armies invaded Jerusalem and they took the sort of brightest and best of the, the, the Jewish people into exile. They took them into slavery, took them to the land of Babylon. They destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple in the process. And Daniel and his friends and companions lived in, uh, in Babylon under the rule of a king called King Nebuchadnezzar, who was this sort of tyrant king. And they remained faithful to God whilst also actually serving Nebuchadnezzar, um, which is a huge just challenge. How do you remain faithful to your God whilst also serving under a particular king? But somehow they managed to do it. But at this point in the story that we're going to pick up today, Daniel chapter 6, actually there's been a change of regime. Nebuchadnezzar had handed over the kingdom to his son, who was a guy called Belshazzar, who lasted one chapter of the book and then was murdered horribly. And you can read about that in chapter 5. Uh, but he was then followed by another guy whose name was Darius the Mede, who's also known as Cyrus the Persian, because one grandiose title wasn't enough, clearly, for this guy. So when we get to the story of Daniel and the Lion's Den, Daniel chapter 6, Darius, or Cyrus, is in charge. And by this point, Daniel has actually been there for 70 years. It's easy to miss that fact, because it's just six chapters. He's been there for 70 years. And he's faithfully served for all those sort of seven decades, and has risen up the ranks of power, being entrusted with more and more responsibility. So at the start of chapter 6, King Darius appoints 120 satraps, which are just these rulers, and over them are three administrators, uh, one of whom is of which is Daniel. And actually, Darius is so impressed by Daniel that he has plans to elevate Daniel to be in charge of the other two administrators and the 120. So he is going to be basically in the supreme position of power in Babylon, apart from the king himself. Now, the other guys, the administrators and the satraps, not very happy with this. And so they decide they want to plot against Daniel to bring him down. But they realize that there's no vice of his that they can exploit. There's nothing that he's done that is bad that they can bring before the king. The only way to take this guy down is actually to exploit a virtue instead, namely his faith in the God of Israel. And if they know anything about Daniel, is that he is a guy of unceasing worship and prayer of the God of Israel. So they think this is the way in. 
So what they do is they go to King Darius and they say, Darius, like, we think you're amazing. This is a paraphrase. We think you're amazing. And we think that everyone should worship you. And Darius is like, yeah, I think you're right. Everyone should worship me. And like, I've got an idea for you. Why don't you make a law that anyone who worships any other god or any other person in the next 30 days should be, I don't know, maybe put to death, thrown in with the lions? And Darius is like, that's a great idea. And so he does it and he falls straight into the trap. Because in Medo-Persian law, there was this kind of rule that once a king had put something into writing, it could not be changed. Even if the king changed his mind, he was bound by that rule. And there are all sorts of examples from history where, where kings did that, where they would condemn a man to death, had it in writing, then get evidence the guy was innocent, but be bound by the law and have to put this innocent man to death. So they knew it worked in practice. And this is exactly what Daniel's enemies are planning. They know that at this point, Darius has put this into writing and there is no way that Daniel is going to be able to obey that law. There's no way he's going to be able to not pray to his God for 30 days. So Darius uh, swept up in the moment. He signs the document, falls right into the trap. And it says this, verse 10. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Just pause there for a second. Picture the scene. He goes to his home. He goes upstairs to his home. Now, in these days, the upstairs rooms, they had windows, but they were small windows because you didn't want anyone breaking in or animals climbing in or robbers getting in, anything like that. So they were elevated windows. They were small windows. They often had this kind of lattice framework over them so that the breeze could get in and you could look out, but no one else could see in or get in. So these guys aren't wandering past the house and they just happen to see Daniel. He's up there through a tiny window. I don't know how they heard that he was praying, whether they were like listening or they hacked his Alexa or whatever they did. But like this was not a mistake. It was not a coincidence. They have gone out of their way to catch Daniel in the act of prayer. And they get the evidence they need. They go back to the king and they say, Daniel is not paying any attention to you. He is praying to his God three times a day. You need to put him to death. And the king, it says, is greatly distressed, I think, for two reasons. One, because he knows that these people who he has given positions of power to in his kingdom have stabbed him in the back. And I'm sure there's a whole uh, load of just shame and just feeling like, how could I be so stupid? And, and how could I be betrayed by these people all tied up in that? But I think the reason, the greatest reason why he's greatly distressed is because the one man he wanted to rule the kingdom on his behalf, Daniel, his most trusted advisor, he knows he is now legally bound to throwing him, him to the lions, to his death. And he is greatly distressed. So reluctantly, he kind of gives this order for Dan, Daniel to be lowered into the cave of ravenous lions. And even as he does it, he says this, may the God whom you serve continually rescue you, which is kind of ironic when you think about it. He's essentially offering a prayer to a foreign God, which is the very thing that he's made a law that no one may do. But he's just desperate in this moment. And we're told that rather than going back and feasting and celebrating and having entertainment as a king typically would, he actually went home, he fasted and he didn't sleep and he was worrying about Daniel. The next morning it says this, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. 
This is an amazing story. But actually, it's quite a different story to the circumstances most of us find ourselves in. I rarely wake up in the morning and think, I wonder if this is the day I'm going to be thrown to the lions. Uh, Although, to be honest, being a southern softy up in Manchester, I'm feeling a bit (laughs) vulnerable today. But not that you're lions, you're lovely. But um, but, but it's easy to read stories like this and think it's great, but kind of irrelevant. But actually, all of us do face challenges that are not too dissimilar from what Daniel faces. We all face challenges with complex life circumstances or the temptations to back down on our worship and commitment to our God. There are challenges about how to live out our faith in a world that can sometimes feel, well, sometimes just ambivalent towards faith, sometimes downright hostile. Or it may even be that some of you, there are people in your life who who are out to take you down because of your faith. I don't know what you're going through, what challenging circumstances you face. But I want to suggest that even if it doesn't feel as extreme as Daniel, we will go through things that that require us to have the same level of strength that Daniel had. And the thing that Daniel had that sustained him in and through and out of the lion's den is the same thing that will sustain us. It's prayer. Prayer is at the heart of this story. I mean, arguably, prayer was the thing that got him into the lion's den. So you might think that the point of this sermon is if you want to get out of trouble, just don't pray. But that's not the point, particularly at the beginning of a new wake of prayer. The point is actually, just eat burgers, that's the answer. Like, the point is actually, we need to be people who, who pray regularly, who are known for prayer like Daniel did, and for whom prayer is the thing that strengthens you before, in, through, and out of difficult circumstances. So I want to just look at two aspects of prayer that come through in this passage today. And my suggestion is that we really make like this week of prayer, or you really make this week of prayer a priority. But actually, I'm less interested in this week of prayer and more interested in you developing a life of prayer, because actually that's what Daniel does and that's what sustains him. So two aspects of prayer that come forward in this passage. The first is this. Prayer re-centers us. Prayer re-centers us. When you read the life of Daniel, you get the sense that habitual, repeated prayer is just part of what he does all the time. Now, for many of us, prayer is something we reach for in moments of crisis, sickness, bereavement, just unexpected circumstances. Suddenly we go, oh, I ought to pray. And of course, those are the exact moments we should pray. I'm not saying don't pray in those moments, but they're not the only moments we should pray. And Daniel didn't start praying when he heard this edict about the lion's den. It's not like, oh gosh, I ought to do something, let's pray. He already prayed. I mean, that's how he got into that circumstance. He was known as someone who prayed repeatedly to the God of Israel. So we're told that in that moment, he three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. This had always been his practice. You don't even get the hint that Daniel upped it to four times. Like he carried on doing what he had already been doing all his life. This was his daily practice. And actually, it wasn't just his daily practice. This was the daily practice for most Jews. Most devout Jews would pray morning, noon and night every day. So all Daniel is doing is continuing in Babylon the practice he would have done before whilst being in Jerusalem. But think about this for a moment. He is not living in the land of the Jewish people. He is not living there with access to the temple. He is living in a hostile pagan nation. And yet he is living, as it were, with his body clock attuned to that of a different kingdom. Prayer is a way of him three times a day recentering himself, not around the kingdom in which he is living, but the kingdom to which he is faithful. So he is living here in Babylon, morning, noon and night. He is saying, I want to be recentered around this kingdom to remind myself of who I give allegiance to. So morning, it's like first thing he's saying before Babylon gets a chance to shape me, I want to be shaped by, the, by, by allegiance to the kingdom of God. 
Jerusalem. Even though that city is miles away and lies in ruins, that's where I'm giving my allegiance. Noon, it's like a way of saying, okay, I stop in the middle of the day. I say, however Babylon has influenced me, Lord, would you forgive me, strengthen me, prepare me for the second half of my day. End of the day, just before you sleep, you, you, you pray again and you say, Lord, however Babylon has influenced me, would you reset me and help me to live for your kingdom again? Three times a day, it's a way of recentering himself on the kingdom to which he really gives his deepest allegiance. Prayer recenters us. It reminds us what kingdom we're living under. And for Daniel, it wasn't just like his, his body clock was oriented to a different kingdom. Actually, his very prayers were, there's no easy way of putting it really, it's kind of clumsy, but they were like directed to a different kingdom. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 10 says, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. He is literally facing this other kingdom as he is praying. Now, I don't know if he just had loads of different rooms facing different directions and he chose that one or whether he'd looked on right move and it said, with a Jerusalem facing window. And he's like, how lovely. Like, or actually, I don't think it's inconceivable given that Jeremiah told the exiles to build houses in Babylon. I don't think it's inconceivable or too stretch of an imagination to think that Daniel actually deliberately built his house facing Jerusalem. I think that's quite plausible. Either way, however it happened, there is a real intentionality about Daniel's prayer. He is orienting his whole body clock, morning, noon and night, but also his very direction of vision towards this other kingdom. Say, I live in this kingdom, but this isn't the one that I am ruled by. I'm ruled by that kingdom. And I'm going to look at it three times a day and I'm going to pray, reminding myself that oh, even though that is a thousand kilometers away and it is in ruins, that's where I give my heart. That's where I give my allegiance. Prayer re-centers us. In fact, two of the three daily prayers that the Jewish people prayed coincided with the sacrifices in the temple. So his whole body clock and his whole physical orientation is tied together, saying, I want to live by that time zone, that set of values, even though I am not there in that kingdom. So what should prayer look like for us? Well, I want to suggest that this world is constantly trying to shape us. Sometimes in good ways. I mean, there is plenty about this world that is good. I, it's the best world I've ever lived in. I love it. <laughs> but, but there is also loads about this world that is not great, that is trying to shape us in, in ways that are hostile to our faith, whether it's just the pressures and the pace of life or specific messages we are being fed through news and social media or value systems that are imposed upon us that can shape us in ways of thinking that are not a kingdom ways of thinking. Prayer is a way of recentering ourselves and not saying I'm going to get out of this world. None of us have that option. We're going to be present in this world, but faithful to that one. Present in this kingdom, but faithful to that one. And prayer is a way of us being a faithful presence. So we're present here. We're active in this world, but our faithfulness is to a different kingdom. And prayer recenters us regularly. I want to suggest that we need to build a regular pattern of recentering prayer in your life. Maybe it isn't three times a day for you, but actually maybe something like that, something like that structure is really helpful. Here's a suggestion. Why not every morning before you pick up your phone or anything like that, just say, I want to recenter myself around the kingdom of God. We need to, through our times, just give devotion to him. Through, through the way we direct ourselves, we need to give devotion to the kingdom of God, whether it's through our times, whether it's through setting aside a particular place where you go or whatever. I'm not saying you have to literally like build your house so you can face Kingsburn Hall or whatever, but, but like something physical, some space that you carve out that say this time and this place, this is for you, Lord God. 
I've got a friend of mine who is planting a church in San Francisco at the moment. And while I was writing this talk to do at my church a little while back, he sent me this WhatsApp message. And here's, here's the picture of it. Here he is. He says, my prayer spot this morning. And I saw that. And the first, first feeling I had was just this sort of raging jealousy of like, that's, I am in wet, dark, grey London. That's not fair. And then I realised, hang on, this guy's not praying. He's on his phone. And then I felt self-righteous, which was way better. Than that. But the point is, like, this guy has gone and found a place and a time where he can be like, this is a way of recentering and setting myself on God. What might that look like for you? You may want to get up in the morning and before you touch your phone, this is a message for you, Tom, if you're listening to the podcast, before you touch your phone, say, I don't want to be shaped by the kingdom of Twitter or BBC News or whatever it happens to be. I want to be shaped by the kingdom of God. The thing is, like, those news alerts aren't going to go away over that 30 minutes you spend with God. They're still going to be there. And the thing is, actually, if you've allowed yourself to be shaped by the kingdom of God, you come and you view those things with a different lens. So why not, before you look at a phone or anything, any device, whatever it is, just before you got out of bed, if that works for you, without you falling back asleep again, like, if that's your moment, just take it and say, Lord, I want everything about my day to be shaped by your kingdom. Before my feet touch the floor of my room, I want to be shaped by your kingdom. Noon, why not just take a moment in the middle of your day Maybe set an alarm for 1 p.m. or something just to stop and pray. And you don't have to be like to everyone in your office, by the way, everyone, prayer time. Like, that will be weird. I mean, do it if you want, but it's, yeah, I wouldn't. But like, I just, and I work in a church office, but like <laughs> 1, 1 p.m. or something, just an alarm goes off. And sometimes I'll just sit there and maybe I'll just turn my palms up on the desk just as a way of saying, okay, Lord, this moment's for you. And I may spend just 30 minutes praying the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Forgive us, reset us, Lord. I want to be shaped by your kingdom end of the day why not just look back over your day and like like Andy started us with gratitude is so important we often pray well every day we pray before we go to sleep and it's a great way of just reflecting on the day thanking God for it uh, repenting of anything that's been unhelpful and then saying Lord would you reset me for the next day and actually there are prayers and tools that I can recommend and Sorry to promote our church over yours, but let's face it, it is a better church. But if you go to, I'm joking, I'm joking. If you go to christchurchlondon.org forward slash prayer, we've got some resources that we put together for our own weeks of prayer. And there are daily prayers that you can check out there and some book recommendations, a talk on fasting. If fasting is new for you, there's a talk I've done there on that. And one of the prayers that we recommend is a prayer called the Prayer of Examine, which is a way of ending your day by looking back over your day, giving thanks for the good, um, bringing before God what has been challenging, allowing him to help you process it and resetting before the next day you may find some of those resources helpful or pete Gregg's prayer course is fantastic and his book how to pray like there are no better books on prayer uh, that i've come across at least so do check those out if that would help prayer is a brilliant way of recentering and resetting us and for some of us, prayer will come naturally. For some of, us, some of us, it will just be easy. It will just be really obvious. Like one of the ladies who runs one of our prayer teams, I remember talking to her about this and saying, we need to train our people in prayer. And she's like, why do you need to train people in prayer? It's just like, you just do it, right? <laughs> and she couldn't fathom that other people might find it difficult because for her, it was just so like breathing. It was so natural. For many of us, that's not the case. That's not the case for me. I have always found prayer hard. But the power of prayer comes through learning to do it so that it does become habitual. The uh, philosopher and theologian J.K. Smith says there is no formation without repetition. I think he's right. The power of prayer comes through building a life of repeated prayer that sometimes is amazing and sometimes not. Not every prayer time you have will be electric and incredible and have burgers with it. Like not every prayer time will be like that. But actually the power is not in the moments that just feel incredible, but it's, it's just, just doing it repeatedly. 
Daniel had been here 70 years. That's sev- I don't know the maths on that. That's 70 years worth of three times a day. That's a lot of prayer. I doubt every prayer time was memorable or powerful, and yet everyone had somehow helped him and built strength into him that he wouldn't have otherwise because of the habit of recentering himself in prayer. You see, praying is somewhat like eating meals. You have eaten many, many meals in your life. I doubt you remember every single one, but every single one has nourished you. There may be a handful of the meals that you have eaten in your life that stick out and you could describe everything in your mind about, about how they were, like they were in an exceptional restaurant or an amazing event or like I cooked it for you or something like, I don't know, they're just that good. But apart from that, you probably can't remember most of the meals you've eaten and yet everyone has nourished you. The same is true of prayer. I can't remember most of the prayer times I've had and yet everyone has made a difference because there's power in habitually recentering ourselves around his kingdom. Does that make sense? So the first thing we see, I think, from the example of Daniel is that prayer re-centers us. The second is that prayer encourages us. What do I mean by that? Well, in prayer, I think we remind ourselves who God is and what he is capable of. And that encourages us in the sense that encourage, to encourage literally means to put courage in. And prayer encourages us in the sense that as we reflect on God and his promises in scripture and then we apply them to our lives, courage goes into us. So that when we find ourselves in the sorts of situations that Daniel might, where we need courage, we don't have to look around and just think, oh, is God faithful? I don't know. Now's a good time to ponder that. Like, actually, that's too late to ponder that. In the moments where you need courage, you can't hit pause and go, hang on, I'm just going to come back when I got a bit of courage. Like, you need courage in you and the courage gets in you by encouraging prayer. Prayer is a way of drawing on the strength and the promises of God so that you have this reservoir of courage within you. Daniel had been there 70 years, and I am sure that the moment, he needed courage loads of times, I'm sure, but the moment where he needed it most, when he is being thrown into a lion's den, the courage that he drew from was this reservoir that he had built over seven decades of recentering, encouraging prayer. The time to begin learning to pray is not when your foot hits the floor of the lion's den. It's actually a random Monday morning where you get up and you don't feel you need any courage, but you say, I'm going to choose today to begin a habit that I will keep going on. Each time just putting a drip of courage into you so that in the moments you need it most, it's there. The moment to begin learning to pray is not when your foot hits the floor of the lion's den. The moment is now. It's choosing however you have thought about prayer up to now to say, actually, I'm going to take a break from that and I'm going to start a habit today so that in the moments where I need courage, it's there. Let me tell you a story from my own life. And I am... Uh, I've lived in London for just over 10 years, 11 years. Uh, before that, I was in Canterbury in Kent. And in 2005, Canterbury's a lovely sort of, uh, sort of sleepy city slash town. And um, uh, I was in our church and uh, Helen and I were dating at the time. Um, and we had been at the evening service together. I was in the band, so I'd been there. I'd done pack down and everything. Uh, and the, I remember the service really well. There was a guest speaker and he had spoken on the subject of the faithfulness of God. And I remember it not because it was a great talk. I actually remember it because it wasn't a great talk. And I remember my attitude, which I'm not saying is a good attitude, but I remember hearing this and being like, I know this, I know all about the faithfulness of God, I've heard this before. And and I remember going away from it thinking, yeah, fine, same old, same old, I know this sort of stuff. Like I say, not a good attitude. But we packed up and we left the place and... um, 
uh, I walked Helen home and so then I was walking to my home which was on the opposite side of the city and I was going through this park that I go through like all the time and it was quite late at this point it was dark and I'm walking along just minding my own business and suddenly I was aware of I'm just going to trust that something good is happening there by the way I mean, if anyone needs to go sort that, you sort that. Uh, like, if it's my daughter screaming, I might run and just leave you to the rest of the sermon. My notes are here. Andy can preach it. But um, she's upstairs. Okay, that's fine. Um, <laughs> but I'm, so I'm walking through this park, and it's dark, and it's late. And I'm uh, just thinking, just minding my own business. And suddenly I'm aware that there's some people coming up behind me. And before I knew it, I had two guys, like one either side of me, hoods up over their heads. One of them pulled a knife about this long, held it against my stomach. They grabbed me. They pulled me off the path into the darkness at the side of the park. And so this guy with the knife, and now that screaming is sounding even more terrifying as I think about this. <laughs> the guy with the knife, he's holding it like point against my stomach. And he said, give me all your stuff. What have you got? So I give him my phone, my wallet, my keys. I had a bag with me. He said, what's in the bag? Give me the stuff in the bag. And I was like, the only thing I've got in the bag is my Bible. I mean, you can have it if you want. And he looked at the Bible and he went, what, do you, do you believe in God or something? And I was like, yeah. And he said, so do you believe that your God could protect you from people like us? Now, that's a difficult question. <laughs> it's not a difficult question. I know the answer to that question because I've read the Bible. And your lovely people, if any of you ask me that, I'd say, yes, of course I believe that. But there's something about having a knife, like, there in the darkness and, like, no one around that suddenly makes you just think, I, I know the answer, but I don't want you to test my belief in that answer. Now, I am not naturally a courageous person. I'm not. I am a coward, truth be told. Like, but years of praying and reading the word and even that night hearing a talk on the faithfulness of God had somehow gone in and encouraged me. So at the moment where I needed courage most, that was not the moment where I could say to these guys, just give me a moment. I'm just going to think about this for a little bit. Like what comes out of you in those moments depends on what has gone into you. So this guy is holding a knife against my stomach and he says, do you believe that your God can protect you from people like us? And I just like, took a deep breath and I said, yeah, I do. And there was just this silence and this pause. And then this just flash of panic went across the guy's face and he turned to his mate and he said, give him back his stuff. We cannot steal from him. And his friend just went, what are you talking about? Like, I've, we're not giving him stuff back. The guy turned his knife on his friend, who I now know is his brother, and he said, give him back his stuff. We are not stealing from him. So they gave me my phone, my wallet, my keys, my Bible. <laughs> um, message is uh, carry a Bible at all times. Yeah, going like, hey, I've got an app on my phone. Like, that's not going to cut it. Like, carry a Bible at all times. They gave me back my stuff. And the guy was like, I'm so sorry. I tried to steal from you. Like, he, he shook my hand. He was like, I, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And uh, actually, I'm a Christian, he said. <laughs> and then he went, not practicing. I was like, I was like dude, you need to practice. <laughs> And like he told me his life story and he just told me like why he was there and where he come from, what he needed money for, all this sort of stuff, shook my hand, apologised and, and, and off I went. And I walked out of the park like what the heck had just happened? <laughs> I got to the end of the park and I phoned the police and I got back home and then they came and picked me up from my home, took me to the station, swabbed my hand and got DNA of this guy. I described him, I explained this story, they knew who he was, they were like oh we, we can tell from your description, everything you told us, we know who these guys are, they've got a reputation. 
we know where to find them. They went into town, they managed to catch the guys, but between leaving me and being caught, actually they had mugged another guy, marched him to a cash point at knife point, uh, got him to take out loads of money and then left him like a mess, like physically unharmed. But I met him through the, the, the court process and he was just emotionally in turmoil, as you would expect. Now, I remember this moment as I was sitting there just giving my statement in the police station and I finished it and the guy put down his pen and he said, are you sure there's nothing you want to change about this statement? And I was thinking, you don't believe me. And even right now, this feels a bit confusing to me. But one of my mates was really high up in the police force. And he said that story just went viral because everyone knew these people and, and were like, there's no way that guy would act like that. That is really, really strange. And so uh, weeks went on and I uh, had to do like the ID parade and all that sort of stuff. I didn't have to go to court. But um, then a couple of weeks later, I was, or a few weeks later, I was walking past this newsagent and I saw this board. Uh, there's this Bible. <laughs> Bible says Rob Victim. Makes it sound like my name's Rob, actually, which is not, not the case. But, and, and, and so I went and like, I, I bought the paper and I'm reading it. And there's this transcript of the court case. And the judge is like, so are you seriously telling me you couldn't steal from this guy because... He's a, like, explain that to me. And the guy's like, I just, I don't know. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't steal from him. And there's loads more of these guys' story that I've learned since. Like he, they went to prison for four years and, and their story since has just been a tragic, tragic case. They're back in prison again. It's an absolute mess. But I don't know what happened in that moment. I certainly wasn't conscious of an angel like <laughs> holding the blade back or anything like that. But I knew that God was faithful. And the point is this, like the moment to begin praying is not the moment when the knife is pressed against your stomach. The moment to begin praying is not when the lion's teeth are bearing down on you. That's the moment to draw on the strength that you've got from already having prayed, from having a life of prayer, of recentering, encouraging prayer. I don't know what you are going through, but can I encourage you, whether you are in a difficult time or a good time, and especially actually if you're in a good time, would you make a habit right now of encouraging prayer so that when you get to the times where you need that courage most, it's already within you? Whatever you're going through. And, and to be clear, if you are going through an awful time right now, I'm not saying it's too late. It's absolutely not. God is gracious and he can act in a moment. If you have never prayed and you are going through challenging circumstances, start now. God is gracious and he can give you courage in a moment. But if you're going through a good time, start now. Don't leave it till that day. Make a habit of recentering, encouraging prayer, saying, I am living in this kingdom, but to be effective here, I want to be living by that kingdom, oriented to it, three times a day or whatever it is for you. I want the whole of my life to be governed by that kingdom so that the courage that I need will come into me through a life of prayer. This is what Daniel did. This is how he was able to be sustained in the lion's den. And to be clear, the story that I would like if I were in Daniel's position is I prayed, I prayed, I prayed, and I didn't have to go into the lion's den. That's not the story he got. God didn't actually save him from the lion's den. He saved him through the lion's den. He still had to go through it. And many of us still need to go through circumstances we would rather avoid. But the amazing thing is we can know God's presence and his protection in those difficult times through recentering and encouraging prayer. So maybe actually... Uh, I've forgotten your name. It begins with a J, isn't it? Jake. Yeah, maybe you could uh, cover. Uh, yeah. I don't know what you are going through right now. I don't know what you are facing right now. But I know you've got a week coming up where you're going to dedicate yourself to prayer. And so this is a perfect opportunity to begin learning. To begin learning something that I hope will become a lifelong habit for you and will sustain you in incredible, powerful ways. And if I had a moment, I could just I could tell you loads of stories of answered prayer and incredible things that God has done in and through people as they prayed, but for another day. 
We have so many reasons to trust in the faithfulness of God. I mean, if Daniel had reasons to trust in the faithfulness of God, we've got way more. Because Daniel understood plenty about God, but he had never seen Jesus. And Jesus is the ultimate reason we can trust in his faithfulness. And if we had time, we could look at the Daniel story and show you so many ways in which Jesus is the true and better Daniel. Because like Daniel, he faced all sorts of opposition from people who didn't want him to inherit the kingdom. They found no vice that they could exploit, no sin that he had done. And so they exploited a virtue, his unwavering commitment to his God. But Jesus had a deep commitment to prayer. Regularly, you read through the Gospels, morning, noon and night. There he is connecting with his father in a way that gave him courage so that in the moment of greatest trial, he could literally set his face to Jerusalem, the Gospels tell us. Turn to face this city where he knew his God dwelt, but he was going to lose his life. And when his enemies got Jesus before the rulers, like Darius, even Pilate said, I can find no reason for condemning this man. And yet he was condemned. He was not rescued from the cross. He died on the cross. God didn't send an angel to stop the nails at the last minute like the teeth of the lions. Actually, he went into the ground. He was buried. There was a a stone rolled over the grave. And even that was not enough to stop God. Because God is faithful and he can turn anything around. It's because of the faithfulness of Jesus going to his death and raising again that we can know God will not allow us to go through anything we cannot bear. And he will ultimately make all things good. At break of day, like with Darius, the people ran to the, to the tomb and the stone was rolled away. This time not by them, actually it was already rolled away. And there was an angel there saying, why are you looking in here as if you're expecting to find a dead guy? He's alive and you can trust him. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, our greatest enemy, death itself, is defeated. We can trust him. And prayer is the way that we come into relationship with him. We connect with him. We draw from his strength and his promises in our lives. So I wonder if you will stand. And um, here's what I'd love us to do. I I don't know what you're going through right now. In in a sense, I don't need to know. Um, Although I'd love to pray for you, if that would help. Um, But I want to give you a moment just to sort of recenter yourself on Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're going to worship and we're going to take communion. And, and I expect actually we'll have a chance to pray later. And I'd love to pray for some people and maybe God will have some things he wants to say. But right now, why don't you just take a moment? You may want to close your eyes. You may want to just breathe deeply and just reflect on the fact that God is here. He's present. And I want to invite you to use this communion, the taking of the bread and the wine, And this singing, this worship, as a way of fixing our eyes on Jesus and saying, I want to be shaped by your kingdom, not by the circumstances that are around me right now. And Lord, my prayer for us is that you, by your Holy Spirit, would encourage us. You would put courage into us now as we fix our eyes on you. We'll come back to praying specifically later, but right now, just use this as a moment for recentering on him allowing him to fill you afresh with his spirit.